So we'll uh, have the next 30-ish minutes with Dr. Robert Tracy McKenzie, author and history professor. Dr. McKenzie spent 22 years at the University of Washington on the uh, faculty of the history department at the University of Washington in Seattle. Um, he did his graduate work, his PhD work at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, correct sir? Yes. Uh, and the last 12 years he has been at Wheaton College outside of Chicago on the history staff at Wheaton College. 34 years total in academia and a number of books written. Uh, one that I'm excited about that he just gave me in the car on the ride over from the hotel is The First Thanksgiving and a historical Christian perspective on Thanksgiving, which I'm very interested in. So it's my favorite holiday. If you've been around Lakeland at all, you know, in November, if I get to do announcements, I love Thanksgiving. So anyway, that'll be good. Uh, he is a generous, kind, thoughtful, wise scholar and Christian. And he has blessed us with his presence in a summer weekend when he could be doing a number of other things. He's come to join us and to speak to us. Uh, and Dan and I had the pleasure of doing dinner with him last night. He is like us. He would fit in at Lakeland, and that's why it's just a great blessing from God that he has chosen to spend this Saturday and Sunday here in Lee Summit and providing a little bit of wisdom and thought and insight and challenge. So the background to this, if you're not familiar, uh, during our course season, uh, I was one of the courses in the Lenten season and then the spring season both. Uh, as a former history teacher, I was drawn to his book, We the Fallen People, and it is very, very, very prescient. It is very pertinent in our day and age of divisiveness, of a questioning of our government system, of politics, of our leadership, of our country. Uh, and in fact, Thursday night, uh, if you were paying any attention to the news, you couldn't do anything but see the hearings on the January 6th commission. All of that is wrapped up into his book, but it goes much deeper than what meets the eye and what we currently see in media and what we think about. And he will challenge us this morning to think historically and to think Christianly. So would you please give a very warm welcome to Dr. Robert Tracy McKenzie. Good morning, everyone. Uh, it is um, really, really good to be with you. So I get to bring greetings to you from Wheaton College, which is in the Chicagoland suburbs. Uh, this is my first time in the Kansas City area. Uh, and if the barbecue is any indication, I definitely uh, want to come back. So re really thankful for this opportunity. I just want to give you a little sense of the lay of the lands of, of the morning's um, uh, focus so you have a sense of where we're headed. Um, Charlie was kind in describing my book, We the Fallen People. What I'd like to do uh, during this first uh, time together this morning is to give you not a, a real overview of this 300-page book, uh, but more maybe a teaser. Uh, I want to talk about some of the historical argument that it contains in the first uh, two sections. Uh, and then uh, when we gather again after a break, uh, I will talk a little bit about what it all means, why it matters. So one is really what we might learn from the past, uh, and then we're going to talk about how we might apply what we uh, learn uh, from the past. Uh, let me just ask you um, really quickly, just it'll help me in, in sort of gauging the audience, how many of you have been part of one of those groups that has been discussing the book? 
quite a few of you. So uh, if my mother were here, she would say, bless your hearts. Uh, and so I am uh, I'm really thankful uh, for that. Uh, if, if you haven't been exposed to the book at all, that's no big deal uh, at all. Uh, I hope I can uh, share this in a way that uh, will be easy to follow. Uh, there were some handouts. I don't know if you were able to pick up one, and if you did not, that's okay as well. I'm not really planning on sort of reading through these line by line at all, but I will refer to some of the passages there. And I thought it would be helpful to you as well to have something to take home with you uh, if you wanted to reflect and think later. Uh, and then finally, as Charlie said, I've been a teacher for 34 years and it's hard for me to ever stand up before a group without a handout. So I gave you the handout and, uh, and that uh, part of my work here is done. Uh, if you have uh, been exposed to the book at all, you know that I wrote uh, out of a sense of calling, out of a sense of burden, uh, and out of very particular sensibility to the political moment in which um, we live. Uh, I have been teaching primarily on the American Civil War. That actually is the area where I've done most of my research in the last three decades. Uh, and so as a historian of the American Civil War, I'm not saying it lightly when I say that American democracy, I think, is in a more fragile state today than it has been at any time in the last century and a half. And I think Americans are more polarized today than they have been at any time uh, in the last uh, century and a half. Uh, and so I think we have to acknowledge that. Uh, and I went to the past in part to try to gain insight uh, to help to understand uh, our current uh, moment. Uh, but I tried to stress at the beginning of the book, and I would stress for you today, I have no solution to offer uh, to the political uh, crisis that we um, find ourselves embroiled in. Uh, but I do believe I can offer a starting point uh, for thinking about that crisis. Uh, and that is to return to uh, first principles and to ask a very, very basic question, which uh, will sound so simple and yet is almost impossible for us to, to answer. And that question is, why do we believe in democracy? Now, you might think, well, that's obvious. Who doesn't have an answer for that? Of course we know how to answer that question, but I would suggest that we really don't. Uh, Americans have had an answer to that question. They have been largely unified for two centuries, or almost two centuries, uh, about why democracy is worth defending, why it is uh, an important um, framework of government to support. Uh, and here's my um, sort of insight, I think, from studying the past. When a society begins to agree on a particular question, it's, a, it's kind of an ironic paradox, but at the moment we begin to agree on a certain question, we become less and less and less able to justify our, our position. Because increasingly, we don't know anyone who disagrees with us. Our position is not being challenged. Uh, there's a consensus in our society. And so why Americans might uh, absolutely disagree over why our democracy is not flourishing. We really pretty much agree that democracy, if it were flourishing, would be an ideal form of government for our, our people. So just answering the basic question, why do we believe in democracy, is something that actually we found hard to answer. Uh, and so what do we do in that kind of situation? Well, that's really sort of why I wrote the book, We the Fallen People. There's a starting point for it. There's a point of departure uh, for um, uh, the book, which I take from... Uh, the 19th, excuse me, 20th century Christian apologist C.S. Lewis. Uh, and if you have the um, uh, handout, you'll see a quote from him uh, that I come back to in the book over and over again. It's, it's just a touchstone for my thinking. Uh, and I think it's actually uh, it's just an amazing uh, claim and deeply profound. Uh, he, he starts out by saying, I believe in political equality, 
but there are two opposite reasons for being a Democrat. Now, when he's saying a Democrat there, he doesn't mean capital D Democrat. He's not meaning an advocate of a Democratic Party. He's saying there are two reasons to believe in democracy. And then he goes on to say, you may think all men so good that they deserve a share in the government. And so wise that, the, he says commonwealth, we would say today the government, the society needs their advice. You may believe in democracy because you believe that we are so good and wise. Uh, the public welfare suffers uh, if we're all not heard. Uh, and that's why we believe in democracy. But then think what Lewis says there. It jars our ears, does it not? He says, that, in my opinion, is the false romantic doctrine of democracy. It's the wrong foundation. On the other hand, you may believe fallen men to be so, what, wicked that not one of them can be trusted with responsible power over his fellows. That, I believe, Lewis says, to be the true ground of democracy. So this one little paragraph is just chock full of deep sort of provocative claims. Uh, the first thing he says, I call it the startling realization, is that we can actually believe in democracy, defend democracy, for absolutely very, very different contradictory, diametrically opposing reasons. Then he's going to say that there's a lot at stake because there is one way of defending democracy that is ultimately a false foundation and democracy cannot flourish on that foundation in the long run. So the stakes are very, very high. The final insight, which is sort of implied here, but I just want us to name it. Lewis is telling us that our understanding and defense of democracy always rests on an assumption about human nature. Always rests on assumption about human nature. We cannot think about democracy without at least implicitly bringing to the table certain assumptions about uh, what motivate, motivates men and women to act and, and think and behave. And so that really is the focus of the first few um, chapters of, um, of We the Fallen People. And I think the question that we have to wrestle with, what I would hope that you would wrestle with, that our society would wrestle with, is the question, on what foundation are we building our democracy today? But that's a difficult question to answer, again, because the assumptions that we bring to this conversation are going to be so deeply embedded in our consciousness that it'll be really difficult for us even to articulate them, to be conscious of them fully. So what do we do? Well, most Americans have no answer because as a society, we are a very present tense society. One writer that I love says we are stranded in the present. I love that, that sort of metaphor, that word picture. You think about castaways on a desert island, cut off from all of civilization. We are stranded in the present. Except we are not castaways. We have uh, been the victims of self-imposed exile. We ignore the past. 93% of all the human beings who have ever drawn breath on the face of the earth have died. And yet we live ignoring that 93% of the human race and, and exist only uh, in the context of the present. So what do we do? Well, the answer, again, to quote uh, Lewis, uh, the strategy to move forward, uh, he says, is we need intimate knowledge of the past. We've got to get outside of our moment in time. By ourselves, we cannot understand ourselves. Stranded in the present, we cannot even see the present, much less the past. We get outside of ourselves to get a different vantage point to see our present with new eyes and new insight. So that's what I tried to do in the early chapters of We the Fallen People. I tried to take us to a point in time 
where the American people answered the question about human nature very differently, differently from how they do today. Now, if opinion polls uh, are to be trusted, if a pollster calls you up on the phone and gives you this statement and says, do you agree with this somewhat, very much? Do you disagree with this somewhat or very much? How would you respond to this statement? Human beings are, by nature, basically good. And that pollster is saying, do you agree or disagree? Well, what's the answer? Well, there have been polls in the United States, at least, that have posed exactly that question for at least the last three decades. And generally, they're going to vary a little bit from year to year, right? Uh, but generally, two-thirds to three-quarters of all American respondents say, I agree with that statement. We're, we're basically good. When those surveys asked the respondents to identify, to self-identify their religious affiliation, so that we can think about how self-identifying Christians respond versus the general society, what do you think? Well, we find that if you're part of a mainline denomination, you're more likely to believe that human nature is basically good than the general population. If you identify as evangelical, which we often think of as more theologically conservative, it's still the case that a little more than half of all self-identifying evangelicals in the United States today say men and women are basically good. So in We the Paul and People, I wanted to take us back to a time when that was not the assumption. In fact, that was palpably, obviously untrue to most uh, American people. A kind of skeptical understanding of human nature was the starting point for all thinking about politics a little bit more than two centuries ago. It's not the world that we inhabit today. So in the book, I take us back to the framers of the Constitution. Uh, and I ask, what did they think about human nature as they were thinking about uh, creating a new framework of government? Now, I title that first uh, chapter, Asking Different Questions. Because I'm struck that Americans who are interested in the founding, particularly Christians who are interested in the founding, rarely ask what the founding leaders thought about human nature. What's the question that we ask about the, quote, founding fathers? As Christians, what is it that we most want to know? Were they Christian? Or another way to put it is, were they one of us? Or would they agree with us if they were here today? Or to put it a little more specifically, would they vote the way that we do today? I say in the book that when I meet people in church and they, they find out I'm a historian and they say, well, you know, tell, you know, tell me where the founders, were they really Christian or not? First thing that always comes to my mind is, and I don't say this because it would come across as rude, why do you want to know? Why do you want to know? And, and the reality is, the reason we want to know is we want to know if they're on our side or not. Can we enlist them in the cause? Uh, can we use quote, quotes that we choose for them, sort of as... Uh, I, I liken it to the revolver that you pull out at, you know, at, a, at a shootout. Uh, can I use it for ammunition? Will this buttress my argument uh, when I am debating political positions today? But here's the problem. The reality is that generation did not talk about their religious beliefs very openly in the way that we might expect them to today. When we look at individuals like George Washington or James Madison or other individuals who are part of the Constitutional Convention, you almost will never, ever see them revealing their private religious convictions. They, they just did not say very much about that. 
What they did talk about over and 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 over again is human nature. And it totally makes sense. They believe that for a framework of government to flourish over time, it had to take human nature into consideration. If it did not accommodate itself to the way men and women are in fact motivated to think and act, it could not succeed. So in those crucial years, the 1780s, as the United States was ultimately setting aside its first framework of government and refashioning a new one, the one that has existed to this day, they're talking all the time about human nature. And so it's very difficult to read the correspondence or the personal papers of any of the leading founders without stumbling across over and over and over again their views of human nature. So I include a quote uh, on the, uh, the handout from James Madison that sort of personifies this or exemplifies this uh, idea. This is from uh, an essay that Madison wrote. Madison, a member of the Constitutional Convention, often referred to as the father of the Constitution. Madison was one of the major uh, authors of a series of essays that we uh, call today the Federalist Papers. These were essays written immediately after the Constitution was created to try to marshal popular support to ratify the new Constitution. And in one of those essays, there's uh, 84 of them, in the 51st essay, Madison asked this rhetorical question. He says, what is human nature itself? Excuse me, it's not what he said. He said, what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? What is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature. What he would mean by that is that the founders lived at a time when the popular explanation for government was that government exists because of our fallenness. I don't know if any of you ever come across the name Tom Paine, Thomas Paine, who was the author of this pamphlet, Common Sense, which was published in 1776. Within a few months, it was in one half of all the households in the British colonies in North America most widely read political statement in all of American history. And Paine says early in that pamphlet that we create society because of our wants, but we create government because of our wickedness. Like, excuse me, like clothing, it is the badge of our lost innocence. So their worldview says, why do we have government? It's because people don't treat one another the way they ought to treat one another. That's why we have government. So when Madison says, what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections of human nature, he's saying something that almost everyone in that generation would have taken for granted as an obvious truth. But they go beyond that. And so uh, on the second page of uh, the handout, I just gave you some samples, some quotes. Uh, every individual quoted here was a member of the Constitutional Convention that met in Philadelphia uh, in 1787. And I'm not gonna read each of these quotes um, uh, at length, but I would just encourage you to scan down them, look at the nouns. Typically, it will be nouns when they talk about qualities of human nature. Just think about them for a moment. Avarice. Avarice is a major motivation, according to Benjamin Franklin. What is avarice? So, we don't use that term a whole lot anymore today. It's greed, right? It's a synonym for greed. Benjamin Franklin is saying, wait a minute, as we're creating this government, let's remember that most people are greedy. Ambition. Surely ambition is a compliment, right? Don't we want to be ambitious? I would like my son to be ambitious, right? 
But words change meaning over time. That's one of the things that makes uh, the study of history both sort of exciting and also a little bit uh, dangerous. Because words change in their meaning. In the 18th century, ambition was not a virtue. When Alexander Hamilton is writing in a diary, he's taking stock of his character and he's sort of, he's identifying his greatest flaws. What is his chief flaw, he writes by his own estimation? Ambition. Ambition in the 18th century, you can see this in uh, um, sources like the Oxford English Dictionary, which is a dictionary that traces the meaning of words over time. Ambition in the uh, 1700s meant the inordinate desire for honor and status and power. So Franklin is saying one of the motivations that's just inbred into the way we're made is this deep desire to get recognition, acclaim, and influence. So much so that we're willing to cut moral corners to get that. What are some of the other ones? Self-love. Self-interest. Self-interest again, that comes up a lot. Interest, there's the word from James Wilson. The lust for power, that really is sort of a synonym for being ambitious. Alexander Hamilton, again, at the bottom there, you see, says ambitious, rapacious. That's not a word we use again, but what does that mean? Greedy. So what are the framers saying? First of all, I always like to tell my students, my students, when they're first exposed to this, they say, wow, this is just, this totally turns everything upside down. You're telling me that the founding generation thought that we're all evil. And I say, no, that's not what they thought at all. If they thought that we were all evil, would they have created a form of government that's only legitimate if all the people agree to it? That's what the Declaration of Independence means when it says that our governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. You would never create a form of government based on popular consent if you thought everybody's just evil. There is a kind of optimism about the potentiality of human nature built into the idea of creating a free government. And yet... Even why they hope that they can do that, they say, but we have to acknowledge what our propensities are. Our propensities are self-interested. Our propensities are is to accumulate stuff. Our propensities are to acquire power and influence. So we have to come up with some sort of government that can both acknowledge those limitations and flaws while hopefully creating a system that can deliver a measure of justice. It's a complicated, complicated worldview. I like to challenge my, my students to say, this is history for grown-ups, all right? Uh, we're gonna dismiss those easy extremes. Everybody's good, everybody's bad. It's more complicated than that. But would the framers have responded to that pollster who said, you know, agree, disagree with this statement, men and women are basically good? They would have said, Haha, where did you get that idea? Where did that come from? That sort of crazy idea. This is one of the great things of studying history. We take views that become like the air we breathe in our culture. And we figuratively travel through time to a moment when people hear those views. People that we respect. People who share our Christian faith. And they hear that same view and they say, where in the world did that come? What were you smoking when you thought that was true? Who believes this? Now here's where we have to uh, make clear what we're doing here. We're not saying that the framers of the Constitution have moral authority in our lives. 
We're not saying that they're infallible. We're not saying that one of the ways to live wisely is to ask the question, what would the founders do? We could all have little bracelets, WWFD. What would the founders do? And that answers all our questions. That's not okay. In fact, to be very honest, that's a form of idolatry. To impute absolute moral authority to someone to whom God has not given that authority. But we can respect their perspective. And when we're exposed to it, we have a choice to respond in one of two ways. We can say, wow, how weird they were. I am so thankful, God, I am so thankful that I'm not like the founders were, and I live in this moment in time when we know things so much better. That's one way to respond. And of course, we will never learn a single thing ever uh, from that way of uh, approaching the past. Or we can say, you know what? At the very least, I don't think they were more stupid than I am. I actually don't think they were more immoral than I am. And so maybe I ought to at least listen to their perspective. And one of the things that studying this time when people think so differently does for us is it just makes us aware of those values that we've had that we take for granted because everybody we know agrees with us. One of the things that I think we all want to challenge ourselves to do is to do what Paul says he aspires to do when he says we, in 2 Corinthians 10, we want to take every thought captive to obedience to Christ. I often equate that, it's a cumbersome adverb, but to thinking Christianly. But here's the reality, we cannot think Christianly about values that we hold if we're not aware of the values that we hold. Does that make sense to you? So becoming more self-aware of the worldview that we have is a first step toward taking those views captive to Christ. So at this point, we don't know that the founders are right. We just know that they have a way of thinking about human nature that would not be at home in our world today. But that, I would submit, is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to ask some hard questions. Uh, and at the bottom of the page, I'm not going to go into this in great detail, but in the bottom of that second page, uh, I share some scripture passages for you. Uh, and I would make the claim, and I'm not going to go into detail about this so much now, but I would make the claim that what they are describing in their views of human nature is very compatible with what the scripture says about our being. Starting with the psalmist who says, There is none who does good, no, not one. On to the New Testament where James says we stumble in many ways. Or the Apostle John says, if we say we do not sin, we deceive ourselves and we call God a liar. What I would not argue necessarily is that the framers were drawing their understandings from Scripture. I don't know that they weren't. problem is I don't know that they were. They were typically, for their day, unbelievably broadly read and educated. They knew ancient history. They knew ancient literature. Uh, they were often individuals worldly experience. They were merchants and attorneys and large landowners. And they also were aware of Christian scripture. And perhaps all of these things are at work uh, in their understanding of human nature. But what we can say without any sort of qualifications is their view is absolutely compatible with what the scripture taught. It was a truism. It was widely, if not almost universally, Accepted. Then in the book, I move on just really quickly to what I called the great reversal. And here I want you to see our world today. Do you know where we can see our world today? In the 1820s. 
within about 30 to 35 years of the framing of the Constitution, you would be hard-pressed to find a single prominent public figure who is willing to acknowledge that human beings are self-interested or selfish or ambitious or greedy. The way of speaking about human nature was becoming what we take for granted today, something that pays tribute to our innate natural virtue. And so I'll just give you a few examples. I'm not going to try to explain this. In fact, I think it's hard to explain. The most important thing is we just see the, the, the transformation, the transition. So you have individuals. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of this man, John O'Sullivan. He actually was one of the most prominent journalists of his day. Uh, and John O'Sullivan uh, is the man, you may have heard the term, I don't know, manifest destiny. I don't know if you've ever come across that phrase. He's the one who really popularized that term. Uh, from his editor's desk in New York City. He writes uh, in this time in the 1830s, any worldview that distrusts human nature is degrading and absurd. You have academics, intellectuals, I don't expect you to know this name, George Bancroft wrote a 10-volume history of the United States from the American Revolution uh, to the year 1800. He had a lot to say uh, in those um, uh, short span of years. He said that the common judgment in taste, politics, and religion is the highest authority on earth. In other words, what we can agree upon, highest authority on earth. And the nearest possible approach to an infallible decision. Our, our way of seeing the world is perfect. Which means what? That the Spirit of God breathes through the combined intelligence of the people. Or as he puts it elsewhere... The voice of the people is the voice of God. Now, when I was young, my, my mother used to say, I would say something I can't imagine that was at all disrespectful or immature, but I would say something and she would just, she would move over a couple of steps and I would say, what's going on? I'd say, well, I just want to be out of range when the lightning hits. Uh, and, and I think, you know, when George Bancroft says that, I just want to move over here a little bit, except what happens is not people moving away from George Bancroft, they're saying, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's who we are. It's an intoxication of a democratic mindset. Yes, our views are infallible. Herman Melville, any of you in a high school class where you're required to read Moby Dick? All right. Well, so one of his uh, books, less, uh, not one that I was so familiar with, a novel called White Jacket, he has one of the central characters in that novel. It's the very last, it's the conclusion of the, of the novel. He says, long enough have we been skeptics with regard to ourselves. He goes on to say that the political Messiah has come and he has come in us. <laughs> and then in politics. In politics, it's hard to know whether the political sphere is driving these other cultural uh, dimensions and domains or if it's reflecting those other, and, you know, cause and effect is hard to, to nail down. But in politics, we see the same thing. Andrew Jackson, who's elected president for the first time in 1828, will say in that election year, I have great confidence in the virtue <clears throat> of a great majority of the people. No framer of the Constitution would have ever said that. In his farewell address to the American people in 1837, he says, <clears throat> the people are enlightened, patriotic, marked by good sense and practical judgment, distinguished for their intelligence and their high tone of moral character. They are uncorrupted and incorruptible. Did you know that about yourself? You are utterly incorruptible. He goes on to say, America will always remain great as long as 
Americans remain true to themselves. I call that the Hallmark Channel understanding of human nature. You, all, you know, there's always going to be this moment in the Hallmark movie where the, you know, the protagonist is, is worried about their romantic life uh, and the wise older person says, honey, what is your heart telling you, right? Just follow your heart and you'll never go wrong. That's what America is coming to embrace long before the Hallmark Channel was created. So what do we do with all of this? If you, wanna, if you are following along, if you want to look at that fourth <clears throat> page, I want to end with a quote from one of my favorite writers and then a passage of scripture. Alexis de Tocqueville, I don't know if that's a name. If you've read the book, then you've certainly have been exposed to Tocqueville. Tocqueville is this young Frenchman who comes to the United States during the presidency of Andrew Jackson, uh, travels across most of the United States, interviews several hundred Americans, goes back and thinks about what he has seen for eight years and writes a 900-page reflection on democracy in America. And I love this quote. I share it with almost every course that I ever teach. Tocqueville says, a man, or we could say uh, any uh, human being, can hold a firm belief which he has adopted without plumbing it. What he means by that, without thinking deeply about it. We, we hold beliefs that we have not thought deeply about. Then he doubts when objections strike him. So let's think about it. We start out holding a deep belief that we haven't really thought about. Then either something occurs to us or someone else begins to challenge our beliefs and now all of a sudden we don't know what to believe anymore because we really didn't have much of a foundation for what we believed. It was unthinking, but now it's been challenged and now we're adrift. Then he goes on to say this. He says, one may count on it that the majority of mankind will always stop short in one of those two conditions. They will either believe without knowing why, or they will not know precisely what to believe. I used to share this with my students at the University of Washington. It was very secular, and I would, I would read that quote, and then I would look them in the eye, and I would say, brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be this way. That was my uh, sort of evangelical preacher coming out there. <laughs> brothers and sisters... When we are called to honor God with all our minds, when we are called to take every thought captive obedience to Christ, we must not stop short and settle for either of those two positions. Believing something that we do not know why, or not knowing why we believe, or what to believe. And so, let us be encouraged and admonished and exhorted by Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. I don't think that is our present reality, but it can be a glorious aspiration. Um, for us. So I'm going to leave us there. I hope that's like a teaser that makes you think, wow, I can't believe that time went by so quickly. I want more, more, more. And the good news is we're going to get more. I want to talk with you a little bit later about what I think this means and how we might go about applying this new realization in our lives. But I think that's where I should stop for now. Thank you, Tracy.
beautifully done. Did you catch yourself thinking like I was? Like, man, I never had a history professor like this. <laughs> Holy smokes. Would that have been amazing to be one of his 7,000 students? I think that was your number last night at dinner, right? Yeah. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 7,000 students over the last 34 years have been blessed by Dr. McKenzie's classroom at the University of Washington in Wheaton. Would you give him one more round of applause for that? That was fantastic. Mm.